Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. We continue with our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. This is um, David Chiam, the founder and CEO, founder, CEO, and executive uh, chairman of Mind Champs, a groundbreaking early learning educational organization based on strategies devised from research in neuroscience, psychology, education, and theater. Founded in 1998, MindChamps launched its first preschool in 2008. Its approach is being adopted around the world. The company is worth well over $180 million today. But David Chem still remembers very clearly the day he was being called stupid and his first day at school in Australia. As a nine-year-old, he could not speak a word of English to the shock of his teachers and classmates. You see, he and his family were part of the boat people who arrived in Australia in 1978 after fleeing war that was ravaging Vietnam. Mr. Chiam's parents, a highly valued education, as many Asian parents uh, do, uh, reinforced by their traumatic escape from, from the war. He was determined to excel in his studies and decided to become a doctor to the delight of his parents. However, when he was 13, something happened that altered the entire trajectory of his life for good. His sister told him about an ad that she had heard on radio that a new Australian drama series was looking for an Asian boy aged around 13 or 14. She didn't think he'd do anything about it, but laying in bed that night about the opportunity, two words came to David's mind, why not? He ended up landing the starring role on Butterfly Island. I'm not seeing it, but there you go. It was a TV series called Butterfly Island and became the first Asian Australian to be given a lead role on mainstream television, appearing on screens around the world. It didn't stop there. He was uh, written into the scripts of several Aussie, uh, iconic Aussie series such as Sons and Daughters and A Country Practice. Even though he completed his year 12 exams with flying colors, He had to finally tell his parents that he would be studying acting and filmmaking instead of medicine. It was during his first day at the Australian film television and radio school that David experienced an epiphany, if you like, after the school principal explained to the eager news students that while millions of people had talent, it is actually the learning of the craft of filmmaking that would help lift that talent to greatness. As he contemplated on these words, David wondered what would happen if the same principle was applied to education, that maybe there could be another way of teaching that helps children understand the art and craft of how to learn and engage their mindsets at the same time. And this is how MindChamps was born. All of us, don't we, love rags to riches stories. For start, they're very inspirational, and they're also very instructive. But equally instructive are, rag, are riches to rag stories as well. In truth, 
There are just as many stories of people like athletes, businessmen and businesswomen, celebrities, who had it all, but lost it all. Their stories are sobering and often serve as great warnings to us. In our passage this morning from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, Jesus shares uh, with his disciples and Pharisees a riches to rags and rags to riches story of a very different kind. It depicts a very tragic and serious reality. Here's the parable on the screen. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, there is a great chasm between us and you that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Then the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead, like Lazarus, goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There are two scenes in this parable, one depicting life on earth and the other depicting life in the afterlife. In the first scene, Jesus introduces us to two men who are polar opposites. One is living a life of luxury and the other living a life of misery. The first is an anonymous, obscenely rich, self-indulgent man who loves flaunting his wealth. Every day, he would wear clothes made in purple dye. And purple is a symbol of luxury at the time. And with a touch of humor, I reckon, Jesus tells us that he also dresses in fine linen, which refers to quality Egyptian cotton used in making undergarments. So Jesus is saying even his, uh, his undergarments, his underpants, were luxurious. 
He lives in a grand home. Everything about this man screams, I have loads of money. I am very powerful and I'm a very important man. The second man we meet is Lazarus, who's found just outside the rich man's palatial home. This is the only time Jesus gives a character a name in his parables. Now the name is very ironic because it means one whom God helps. And what we just read is not a picture of someone who's receiving God's help, is it? Not at all. He lies outside the rich man's gate, immobilized and begging. In ancient cultures, people with disability were taken by family or friends to beg at the entrance of public venues, especially places of worship, like the lame beggar that Peter and John healed in Acts chapter three. At night, the friends or relatives would take these individuals home. In Lazarus' case, he was deliberately left there, outside, left outside the rich man's gate, maybe in the home, hope that this rich man would bless him, that there was a greater chance that Lazarus would receive help from this rich man. This means that whenever the rich man leaves and enters his mansion, mansion, he'd see Lazarus. And that's how he knows Lazarus by name in verse 24. He was fully aware, the rich man was fully aware that Lazarus was starving, hoping for food, scraps, which he didn't even get. That Lazarus was diseased and oozing with sores, sores which attracted the dogs. Now, Jewish society regarded dogs the same way that we would regard rats, filthy, unclean, worthless, unhygienic creatures. And according to Jewish laws, this meant that, uh, that Lazarus was ceremonially unclean. His situation is as bleak as the rich man's situation is bright. In the second scene, we have two men succumbing to death. Lazarus is taken immediately to be at Abraham's side. It's a picture of God's welcome, approval, favor, and blessing. In other words, Lazarus goes from rags to riches instantly. God does help Lazarus after all. However, the rich man finds himself in a place called Hades, a place of punishment. Lazarus is comforted, he's at peace, he's at rest. The rich man is in agony and restless. He goes, in other words, he goes from riches to rags instantly. What we have here is a complete reversal of fortunes. Now let me be clear about something though. Lazarus was saved not because of his poverty any more than the rich man was damned because of his wealth. We know this in the light of the entirety of scripture. For instance, Abraham and Job were wealthy, but they were followers of Yahweh. And Lazarus was a follower of Yahweh. That's why he was warmly received by God. He was a believer. The rich man, on the other hand, worshiped 
himself and wealth and money. Brothers and sisters, death is the great equalizer. And the only thing that counts after death is the state of our hearts before God. And only God knows the true state of our hearts. And he's the only one who can give us a new and clean heart through the Lord Jesus Christ. The rich man looks up across the chasm and he sees Lazarus and Abraham together. He makes three requests of Abraham. First, he asks Abraham to have pity on him and send Lazarus to him so that Lazarus could give him some water to cool his tongue. So who's doing the begging now? The rich man. The tables have turned. Now, whether the heat of torment is metaphorical or literal, eternal or temporal, that's a matter of debate. But what is certain, what we can be certain about is this, that Hades depicts, as one commentate, Bible commentator puts it, the intense agony of what it means to be confined to the underworld, knowing that God exists and that one is not with him. Hades is, Hades is a place to be avoided at all costs. In response, Abraham tells the rich man that he can't fulfill his request because there is a permanent, uncrossable chasm that exists between them. But he conveys this message with affection by addressing him as my dear son in one translation. And it's the same phrase that the father uses to address his prodigal son in Luke 15. My dear son, I can't do what you ask. And then he points out to the rich man that he had ample opportunity to do for Lazarus on earth what he's asking Lazarus to do for him now. But he didn't. Not he couldn't, but he didn't because he was indifferent to Lazarus. He was hard-hearted towards Lazarus. He was callous towards Lazarus. He was indifferent and self-indulgent toward Lazarus. Realizing all is lost for him, the rich man thinks of, of his five brothers back on earth who are just like him, wealthy, narcissistic, and callous. He pleads for, uh, for Abraham to send Lazarus to warn them so that they would not end up where he is. Do you notice how the, how the rich man's attitude or view of Lazarus hasn't changed since his death? He never once asked Lazarus to forgive him for his heartlessness and complete lack of compassion. Instead, he still treats Lazarus as inferior by ordering him around. Firstly, as a waiter, Abraham, tell Lazarus to bring me water. And then secondly, he treats him as an errand boy. Abraham, tell him to warn my brothers. Interesting, that one. Abraham denies his request again, saying that God has left them with his word. And in context, the Old Testament. That is what the phrase Moses and the prophets is referring to. And if they will not listen to God through his word, then sending Lazarus 
sending a supernatural, spectacular sign will not change their minds. We know this to be true, don't we? We know this to be true. In John 11, firstly, where many of the chief priests and Pharisees, we read in John 11, where many of the chief priests and Pharisees hardened their hearts towards Jesus, despite the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's a different Lazarus. John 11, you remember that? He was dead. He was in the tomb for four days, and Jesus resurrected him. And we read that the chief priests and many of the Pharisees still hide their hearts towards Jesus. And secondly, Jesus' very own miraculous resurrection. Despite the fact that he rose from the dead, he was rejected. Back then, and he continues to be rejected. So praying for a spectacular sign may not work in changing people's minds. So what? Let me make two points from what we've, from what we've just heard. The first is this. We have been saved for good works. We have been saved for good works. Brothers and sisters, there is so much more to our salvation than saying the sinner's prayer or going to heaven. So much more to our lives. So much more to our salvation than those two things. Through the parable, and in fact the whole of Luke 16, Jesus tells us what we do with our lives matters a great deal to him. And specifically, what we do with our wealth matters a great deal to him. The Bible speaks of two judgments that humanity will face. One is for unbelievers known as the great white throne judgment. Unbelievers will be judged for their sins. The second judgment is for believers known as the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God. Sin is not in view here because as believers, there is no condemnation. As believers, we have been forgiven. So this judgment is not about sin, but about rewards, rewards for our works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive the things done in the body, according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Works that are self-centered, or done with impure motives, or as Paul likened them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, to building on the foundation of Christ, but using wood, using hay, or using straw, they will be burned up. However, works that pleases the Lord, that are of lasting value, are likened to building on the foundation that is Christ, but using gold, silver, and costly stones. They will survive God's test and we will receive from the Lord his just reward. But it must be said, it must be emphasized, true service in the Lord is done without the thought of reward. Even though God will reward us, that mustn't be our motivation 
for our works. Now, salvation still remains by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus, rather than by works, as clearly thought, taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, or in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul wrote, he saved us. God saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So we need to underscore that and emphasize that. But as Ellen Stanley correctly points out, God's gracious intervention does not merely entail bringing us into a saving relationship with him and then letting us bide our time until heaven comes. So we're like in transit. Salvation is not being in a transit lounge where we twiddle our thumbs we're just waiting to catch our flight to get to our destination called heaven. That is such an inadequate short-term view of what salvation is. Jesus has issued a command and a promise to each and every Christian. In John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, to do good works, in other words, fruits that will last. Or in Matthew uh, 5, 16, what is fruits that will last? Good deeds that praise your Father in heaven. To the question that the jailer asked Paul in Acts 16, 31, what must I do to be saved? Even though it appears that there are two answers, in truth, there's only one. Work slash fruits and grace are not contradictory, but complementary. And let me explain very briefly. There are two kinds of works that's talked about in the Bible. The first is men-produced works done to earn our salvation, done to earn God's love and acceptance, done to be right before God. Because such works are self-justifying and self-glorifying in their DNA, they're an affront to God. That's what Titus 3, that we just read earlier, is referring to. The second kind of works is God-produced. The kind of, uh, the good works that that the Bible talks about is the kind of good works that is God-produced. Produced by faith in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, done in gratitude, in humility, and in worship to God for his gracious, undeserved gift of salvation, love, and acceptance. And that is why Jesus said that such works do not and cannot happen apart from being independent relationship with him. In John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not literally, you can do nothing. Of course, we can do much stuff without God. But in terms of producing works that praises God in heaven, in terms of good works that pleases him, fruits that will last, we haven't got a hope in the world in producing these words unless we're in relationship with God first and foremost. In other words, good deeds that praise our Father in heaven originate from God's enabling grace through his indwelling spirit in Jesus' name. 
Grace is more than just God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the power of God at work in every follower of Jesus to produce good works. Paul makes this clear in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, fruitful, godly lives in this present age. The process of being more Christ-like, leading to greater fruitfulness, begins on earth, not when we get to heaven. And this is why Jesus consistently emphasized that the accountability that he holds us to is ethical and lifestyle repercussions, even down to the use of resources like the stewardship of our finances, which is the dominant concern in Luke 16. It is the threat that unifies the entire chapter. For instance, in verses one to nine, the parable that we looked at uh, through Ash two weeks ago, the parable of the shrewd manager, and the one we just looked at this morning begins in an identical fashion. There was a rich man. There was a rich man. So Jesus was not done when he started out in chapter 16 talking about wealth. He's not done. He's concluding, in fact, in this segment of teaching anyways, or the way Luke has arranged it. He starts out with, there was a rich man, and at the end, there was a rich man. And in between our principles, our points that he's making. So he's still talking about finances. Both parables are essentially about Jesus being Lord over our wealth. An outworking of this is to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings in verse 9. What does that mean? Before I explain, a couple of points worth noting. Firstly, worldly wealth simply means finances. A term does not have a negative connotation. Secondly, money comes and money goes. It only has value on earth. Once we die, that's it. It has zero value in the next life. And besides, we can't take it with us. In the light of this, Jesus said, be like the shrewd manager in the parable if you remember, upon discovering that he'd be fired, planned ahead by doing deals with people who owed his boss money. This was so that they would be indebted to him and he would call in the favor when he needed it. To be shrewd in context does not mean being dishonest or being deceitful, but to make decisions today that will store up goodwill and make a difference in the future to look ahead and plan ahead. Therefore, to be shrewd or to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves means to be wise 
and use the finances that God has entrusted us with and invest into causes that have eternal value, causes that will impact the world for God's purposes and the gospel, causes that will glorify him. These are the works that will praise our Father in heaven that he will reward us for. So Jesus is appealing to us. You don't have to be rich. The call to be faithful applies to all of us, not just to the rich. He said, be faithful in the little. So, Paul, so Jesus is calling us, don't spend money just on yourselves. Don't waste it. Or to quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. What does that look like? How do we do this? Jesus gives us an example in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man could have been compassionate, the rich man could have been generous with his wealth that God had entrusted to him to help the poor like Lazarus. But he didn't. Not he couldn't, he didn't. Even though he had the means, even though he had ample opportunity. In stark contrast to the good Samaritan, the rich man was callous, indifferent, and heartless toward Lazarus. He felt no sense of duty, no sense of obligation and conviction to help the poor, to help the needy and vulnerable. His mindset was, his attitude was, this is my money and I can do whatever I damn well please with it. This is my money. No one has the right to tell me how to spend my money. It's mine. If I choose to spend it on myself, if I choose to splurge it on myself, what's that to you? Stick your nose out of my business. And God too. It's precisely the self-indulgent, narcissistic, unrestrained, excessive, decadent attitude and use of money that got him into trouble with God, not his wealth per se. Dwight Eisenhower, who's the president of the United States in the 50, once wrote, a people that values its privileges above its principles soon loses both. A people that values its privileges above its principles soon loses both. When we stand before God, our wealth matters not one whit to God, but how we use it, whether it be the little or whether it be the much. What we do with our lives on earth matters a great deal to God. While we're not saved by works, we have been saved for works. I'll repeat that. While we're not saved by good works, we have been saved for good works. I hope that's clear. The second point I want to make, which is much shorter than the first, we're nearing the end of the sermon. 
The second point, and way more glorious than the first point, is through the parable, we're reminded that Jesus went from riches to rags so that we might go from rags to riches. Through the parable, we're reminded that, that Jesus went from riches to rags so that we might go from rags to riches. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, how did he do that? The apostle Paul explained, writing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. He was with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity, the riches of deity, and took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredible, incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Brothers and sisters, at the cross, an unbelievable and unimaginable mind-boggling exchange and reversal happened. Citing the, uh, citing the Apostle Paul for the final time in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, at the cross, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, we were given the unfathomable riches of Christ. See that? That is our riches in Christ. The righteousness that God bestows on us. And that could only have happened because Paul, because Jesus put aside his riches, set aside his riches, his privileges of deity, and assumed the form of a human being and died on the cross for us. In other words, he went from riches to rags so that we can go from rags to riches. Amen? Do you see that? Do you see that? Jesus went from riches to rags so that we can go from rags to riches. So this week, I'd like you to consider three applications. The first one is this. Give heartfelt thanks to God. Because of Jesus, you have a rags to riches story, the one that truly matters. Number two, is Jesus truly the Lord of your finances? Do you really believe that your finances belong to God? 100%, not the 10%. Those we so often think. Even in our prayers, we say, Lord, we thank you that we're able to give and give this 
set aside 10%, as a token of our gratitude to you, set aside 10%. Biblical view is 100% belongs to God. The biblical view in finances is not the 10% you give to God, but how much you're keeping for yourself. It's not the 10% you give to God, but the 90% you keep for yourself. So is Jesus truly Lord of your finances? If your answer is yes, affirm this and reaffirm this. But if the answer is no, then take time. Make time to respond to his gracious conviction. Come humbly before God and commit yourself to being a steward of his resources. Dedicate yourself to, 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 to looking after the finances that he entrusts you with to be used for his glory and purpose. And I suspect that we will be doing this more than once because we drift. And thirdly, what good works has God saved you for that will praise him in heaven? Who are the Lazaruses, literal or otherwise or symbolically, who are the Lazaruses that God has sent your way so that you can extend his compassion to? Whether they be found in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, or the other parts of the earth. Who are the Lazaruses? that God has placed outside your gate, as it were? Are you just callously walking past the Lazaruses in your life? Are you saying, Lord, you have given me money, you have given me resources, and resources go beyond money. Lord, I want to do something. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you will challenge us afresh about our understanding of salvation. So often we think of salvation as going to heaven. That is a done deal. That, that is a certainty. Phew. And I can do whatever I want in this life as long as I, you know, avoid uh, breaking the Ten Commandments, as long as I don't kill a person, rob a bank, cheat, then I'm okay. Father, I ask that you remind us of this proverb that salvation is more than that, that we have been saved for good works. We have been saved to do things that bring praise to you and in context, our finances. That our finances do not belong to us. They have been entrusted to us by you in your mercy and your grace. And when we stand before you one day, Lord, the question you're going to ask of us is, is, what have you done with the resources that I've given you? And it extends beyond finances. It's our very life. And you're going to ask us, what have you done with the years that I have given you on planet Earth? Have you used it faithfully? Have you lived your life faithfully in a way that brings glory to me? Or have you been self-indulgent? Have you been callous? Have you been indifferent? Lord, I pray that you would burn this question into our consciousness so that, Lord, we're not slack in the manner in which we live our lives. Yes, we're not saved by good works, but we have been saved for good works. And secondly, I pray that you will renew in us gratitude. Gratitude, Lord, for the fact that Jesus, you went from riches to rags 
so that we can go from rags to riches. We have a rags to riches story to tell. Hallelujah. The riches that we have is our relationship. It's found and located and summed up by our relationship with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.